0: I'm in Japan I'm Frank Ling and from Chicago Illinois I'm Charles Lee and you're listening to the grok science show that's right it's a weekly look at the world of science technology and their effects on our daily lives coming up on today's program mr. Jesse Cohen will discuss the best American science writing so stay tuned for all of this plus the Grokatron 5000 and our world famous question a week coming right up here on the grok's science show science show. Well, keeping up with all of the developments in science and technology can be especially daunting for even the most avid science enthusiasts. Thankfully, science writers have been more adept at distilling the advancements in science and, and technology for a general audience. Well, joins us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Jesse Cohen. Mr. Cohen is the series editor for the Best American Science Writing series, which annually collects the best American science writing across the full spectrum of scientific inquiry. Everything from biochemistry, physics, and astronomy to genetics, evolutionary theory, and cognition. And he joins us today to discuss the recent release of the 2009 edition of the series. Uh, Mr. Cohen, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok's Science Show.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Charles. Nice to be here.
0: Uh, well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating collection of uh, articles. Uh, I'm wondering if you first tell us a little bit about the series.
1: Well, the series is actually celebrating its 10th anniversary with this edition. We started in 2000, and this is our 10th version, and I've been with it since the inception. What we do is every year we uh, ask someone from the world of science writing or the world of science to be the guest editor. This year, it's Natalie Angier, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The Times and New York Times, and also a best-selling author. And I spend the year reading newspapers, magazines, online, wherever I can find good science writing. I collect about somewhere between 70 and 100 articles, and towards the end of the year, start passing them along to the guest editor, who makes the final selection and writes an introduction.
0: So uh, you're the one that's doing the uh, selection of all the articles?
1: I'm doing the first culling and finding the things that I think will appeal to the guest editor, and and the guest editor makes the final decision.
0: Uh, Well, uh, you mentioned the guest editor, and you've had a remarkable series of guest editors, everyone from Oliver Sacks to Sylvia Nasser. I'm wondering, how do you uh, find your guest editor?
1: Well, we put feelers out. We, I sit down with my editor at Echo, and we talk about who we'd like. We basically put wish lists together, and then we try to find ways to reach that person and just ask the question. And sometimes we get a yes, sometimes we get a no. But we've managed to find uh, 10 people, and we actually have an 11th uh, Jerome Groupman, who is going to be the guest editor for the 2010 edition, which will be out in a year.
0: Well, I was wondering if you maybe tell us a little bit more about uh, your guest editor for uh, this year's series, Natalie Angier.
1: Well, as I say, Natalie has been writing for The Times for a long time. She's probably the most widely read and best known science writer, certainly science reporter. I think people know her so well because she has a unique style of writing about science. There's a little bit of insouciance in her writing, a rich vein of humor, but she really understands what she's talking about, and she finds really fascinating things to write about and explains them with a great deal of verve and imagination. So she's really one of a kind, and she's been terrific to work with as well. What I love about working with her is that her sense of what makes a good science story and my sense of what makes a good science story are are pretty much the same. I mean, we look for writing that has a certain amount of depth to it, in addition to being well-written, but depth and The story itself should have a very powerful human element. So we bring the scientific world to the general reader in a very immediate way.
0: Is there a bit of an art form to conveying that depth and that human element that all these writers share?
1: Yes, I think there is, but I wouldn't know quite how to explain it. Uh, I think just good writers have a good sense of how to tell a story, how to find interesting characters and draw them out, and how to explain the science. And I think that's the level of difficulty that you don't have necessarily with other forms of reporting, that in addition to doing all the things that a good story has to have, you also have to be able to translate what the scientists are saying into terms that are readily understandable by your average reader. You've edited the
0: series for almost 10 years now. What's your impression of science writing? Has it improved? Has it evolved? Have more people gotten involved in it?
1: I don't know if more or fewer people have gotten involved in it, but I guess my sense is more have, in, in this sense, is that I think because science is much harder to avoid or compartmentalize. It's much more a part of our lives on a daily basis. I think it's something that we're seeing more writers write about, even if they're not specialists in science writing. So I think one thing that has changed is that we're seeing a kind of broader category of writer coming to the subject. And I think because the science writing of the previous generation, the specialist science writers, has been so strong. I think those coming to it know, in a sense, how to write about science in a way that really um, conveys and communicates to people what's going on, and it's an attractive field, an attractive subject for a lot of people. And and so I would say it has evolved in that sense. I think more people are coming to it, and I think there's an understanding of what it takes to make a good story and to make it really work.
0: I noticed uh, Oliver Sacks has contributed a piece in, in the book, and he's a scientist. Do you think that scientists are not necessarily able to communicate their work effectively, or that they just really haven't been involved in trying to popularize their science?
1: Well I I think it depends on the on the scientist I mean in my experience there are plenty of scientists out there who not only explain their work well but actually explain it beautifully and there have been quite a few books by scientists that come out all the time that are really really good Um, it may just be that there are a lot of scientists out there who don't have the time or the energy i mean they're they're working in the lab they're getting grants they have to speak a certain kind of scientific language to get those grants or to communicate with their peers so it may just be a question of ambition time energy or anything else but and, and i have to say also that the scientists i've met personally they've all been able to communicate to me as a complete non-specialist what they're doing what they're thinking so i think it's out there i think most scientists have this ability but you know as i say whether they actually get to spend the time writing a book for a general audience is probably another story
0: was there a common thread that as you're picking out these pieces
1: i wouldn't say there was a common thread i think we uh, go in, i certainly speaking for myself, uh, but I, I gather from the way uh, Natalie approached things, uh, with the sense of, okay, what is really going to speak to us? What's really going to grab our attention? What's going to haunt us? And those tend to be the pieces that have strong story, strong character, and teach you something that you didn't know.
0: Do you have any particular favorite pieces in the book?
1: Well, I try not to pick favorites, uh, because, you know, that's going to get me in trouble. But there are a lot of terrific pieces in the book this year, and the ones that stay with me and that I think people are interested in, and certainly I've talked about with people who've read the book, are pieces like The Itch by Atul Gawande, about a woman who suffered from strange and constant sensation of itching in her scalp, which had no physiological basis as far as any of the doctors she consulted could tell. And they tried everything like bandaging up her hand so she wouldn't scratch. But it didn't work. And she got to the point where she was scratching her head unconsciously while she was asleep. She would scratch and scratch and to the point where she scratched so hard that she broke through her scalp and into her skull. And at that point, her doctors had to come up with a more radical solution, which they did. They snipped nerves in her brain as an attempt to short-circuit this itch sensation that was going on. It didn't work. And Atul Gawande, who wrote the article, draws from all of this and brings us to is a picture of how the brain works that is evolving right now that is perhaps a little counterintuitive. So he uses this really fascinating narrative to plunge us into what is going on on the front lines of brain research right now. And it's really quite interesting because what a lot of researchers are starting to think is that the brain is not just this passive receptacle of sensation and stimulus, that it actually plays a very large and active role in shaping what we're seeing, feeling, thinking, so it is constantly putting out something into our pre-conscious minds, as it were. It's throwing out a kind of a mental feeler about the world around us that it then negotiates with the actual sensations and stimuli that are, we're receiving. So it's not entirely a passive situation, it's more of a a wrestling match in a way. And so drawing from that picture of how the brain might work, Gawande posits that well maybe this poor woman, her situation was that something had happened in her brain. The proper stimulus back to the brain to say there's no itch wasn't happening. It was just without any kind of tampering element or or tamping down was just pushing out this itch sensation So it's actually akin to phantom limb syndrome where uh, people who have, you know, lost limbs through amputation still feel sensation in, in the lost limb. That may well be because of the way the brain actually operates. So, you know, you start with a fascinating story that's also a little icky and a little haunting, and before you know it, you've learned where uh, brain research is right now and, and with its entirely new and radical picture of the brain. It's actually, it's funny, it's, it's new in some senses. It's, it's, uh, it, it actually reminds me a lot of the, the Kantian picture of uh, how our minds work. So it, it's funny that scientists are in some ways getting back to some of the things that Kant just posited and speculated on 200 years ago or so.
0: So in a sense, the brain is trying to impose its model onto what the world is actually giving it.
1: Yes, that's a much better way of putting it. Thank you. That's a very succinct and, and good way of putting it, yes. And, and it's a much messier process than I think we we think it is.
0: Do do you find that uh, coming from uh, the science journalism, that you're you're better able to assess what is going on in the science and find human element in the story?
1: I'd like to think so. I mean... You have to be aware, uh, in someone in my position has to be aware that it's easy to claim an expertise that you don't have, that you simply do not have. So I'd like to think that I might be a little more informed, but I also try to keep that in check at the same time. But yes, I mean, you can tell pretty much what kind of articles are going to work and what kinds aren't. There's a kind of article that the first editor of the series in 2000, Jim Glick, James Glick, liked to call the Here's Where We Are Right Now article, which is a kind of a survey. doesn't necessarily have a strong narrative drive, doesn't necessarily have the depth, and it can be fascinating in its own way. But that kind of article, I think, is a harder sell. I think that kind of article is not the kind of article that's going to stay with you and pull you along. And while it may feed your immediate need to know what's going on, it doesn't necessarily inform it in a really useful or stimulating way. One of the other fascinating
0: stories in the book, uh, which uh, certainly in- informs a very important debate going on in society, is, uh, is called The First ache.
1: The first ache, yes. You know, this is an amazing story because I didn't know until I read the story that prior to fairly recently, the vast consensus among doctors and researchers was that newborn infants and embryos and babies in utero could not experience pain, which seems to me to be completely counterintuitive, but that was the thinking. And all sorts of surgeries would be performed on these poor infants with no anesthesia. And thanks to the work of a researcher, that all changed. And now it's fairly it's common and called for that those procedures be done with anesthesia. But obviously, this touches on abortion and the abortion debate. So, it's interesting how purely scientific research, which is not done with any political agenda whatsoever, nonetheless can create or spill over into the non-scientific world, into the political world as well.
0: I I mean, this is certainly the case for a a lot of hot-button issues in science, evolution being probably the most prominent. Are are you surprised that these sorts of stories about evolution and controversies of evolution still exist in society?
1: I am. I'm surprised and I'm deeply saddened that they are still going on. I have all respect for people who profess a faith, but I think at the end of the day, for Americans to even consider shutting themselves off from science and from what science is telling us, it just is damaging to our growth as a nation and to the intellectual growth of our our children. So it really does continue to surprise and sadden me, unfortunately.
0: You're sort of in a unique position in the sense that you have kind of this broad view of of science, having read all these stories. Do you see some major trends in scientific advances? Uh, What fields do you think are making the biggest strides?
1: It would seem to me, just on the basis of what we see, the biggest strides seem to be coming in research on the brain. And it seems to be because we have MRIs and functional MRIs and other ways to scan the brain and so there's just this enormous undertaking and effort going on right now to scan what's going on in the brain when you're thinking this or doing this or whatever and that is creating a very rich picture of how our brains are working. And and I, I imagine the reason why it's becoming such a big deal is because there's been so little done on it before. You know, I I think in the last 10, 15 years, it's really picked up because I think there's a feeling that we're on a frontier and it's it's a, a very wide open frontier that that can be explored. So that's certainly something I, I'm seeing a lot of. There's always a lot of... of biomedical reporting. I think for a number of reasons. I think because it's our body and, you know, we have a personal stake in finding out if if researchers have gotten a cure for cancer or have gotten to a cure for any other disease that afflicts us. And that obviously touches on what's gone on in genetics and so on. But what I think is interesting is, as far along as we've gotten in terms of understanding our genome and so on, I'm not seeing the results of that so quickly as I had expected. I, when we first published in 2000, it was right around the time that the genome was being decoded. And there was this expectation that new era in medicine was Going to follow upon that discovery very quickly, and I'm not seeing that that is the case. Now it may well happen, but those kinds of stories I'm not seeing. The you know, hey, we because we unlocked the genome, we now can cure this, or we've figured out a therapy for that. Not as much and not as quickly as I expected.
0: Uh, Do you think perhaps those earlier uh, stories might have overstated or oversold the science? Uh,
1: I think they did, and I don't think that was the fault of the scientists. I mean, it was a completely momentous thing to to decode the human genome. And the scientists all along were saying, you know, and we'll do this, it's going to be huge, but it's not going to be what you expect. But I, I think there was such a spirit of the moment. It would have been hard as a writer not to get caught up in it. And, you know, you want to have the triumphant story. That makes for a better story than saying, well, it's a big achievement, but. <laughs>
0: so you mentioned uh, you have an editor for the, uh, the next edition. Do you have any plans like, for a theme for the next edition or that now just been compiled? We don't
1: have any plans right now. I'd be very interested to find out what kinds of stories he really likes. I've just sent over to him a batch of stuff. So I think his responses to that should be really quite interesting. And from there... We'll see. I mean, Jerome Groupman has, is a best-selling writer as well as a as a doctor and writes about medical issues and medicine in The New Yorker, among other places. And, you know, I'd be very interested to see if he's going to want to feature more stories on medicine and biology or whether he's going to say, you know, that's my field, but I'm more interested in these other fields. So we'll see.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, maybe to close, what, what kind of writing uh, in science are you most interested in? What-
1: Physics, which is the... This- kind of stuff that we don't have uh, nearly enough of. I think because we're in this funny time where we're all just waiting to find out what's going to happen with the Large Hadron Collider and, and whether the Higgs is going to be found. So And I think it's the hardest thing to write about, so writers tend to shy away from it. But I'm I'm completely fascinated in, in what goes on in the level of atomic and uh, science and also uh, cosmology. The cosmology we do get a little bit more of because every year there's some crazy story that comes out of cosmology, but um, at least one, you know, but, but uh, the good old-fashioned physics, we're not seeing quite as much. I think, as I say, I think that's going to start changing once the Large Hadron Collider starts producing results.
0: Probably try and get some more physics stories in there.
1: Yeah. I'm going to try, but I can't <laughs> promise anything. <laughs> okay.
0: uh, well, uh, any final comments regarding uh, the best American science writing?
1: Uh, just what my publisher would want to say, that it's published by Echo, which is a division of HarperCollins. It's in bookstores now. Um, anywhere you can buy a book, you'll find it. And if you want to find out more online, it's try visiting www.echo-books, That's com.
0: All right, well, very good. Uh, well, Mr. Cohen, I want to thank you very much for, uh, for joining us today and talking about the uh, best American science writing.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: And you were just listening to Mr. Jesse Cohen discussing the best American science writing. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. All day, all day. It's time to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic scientific or superstitious. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're more scientific or superstitious and a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Cohen, you ready to play the game? Sure, why not? Uh, Person number one, scientific or superstitious, the quarterback, Brett Favre. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, as as something of a Jets fan, I'd say he's more superstitious, and I'm glad to see the Jets are without him. So. Uh, all right. Uh, person number two, Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer. I would. It's a good one. I would say. I. You know. I think Jerry Springer is somebody who has such a calculated sense of his audience. He's probably more scientific than superstitious. No matter what he may say, I think deep down he's more scientific than superstitious.
0: Uh, number three, filmmaker Roman Polanski.
1: I think he must have been superstitious if he thought he was going to be able to be on the lamb for 30-some-odd years.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, number four is uh, Microsoft CEO Bill Gates.
1: Definitely scientific. That guy doesn't have a superstitious neuron in his brain.
0: And finally, number five, the President of the United States, Barack Obama.
1: This guy has such a mastery of strategy and and knowing exactly what he needs to do to get what he needs done. I mean, it doesn't always work, but he really has a, a brilliant sense of it, and I just get the sense that he is uh, he's a scientific person. I, I'd like to think so. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, Mr. Cohen, uh, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and, of course, talking about uh, the 2009 edition of The Best American Science Writing. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you. Take care.